Ready? Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. This is really a welcome back, for sure. I am recording from my living room again this morning, as I assume everybody is. This is now six weeks, Mikhail, of um, self-quarantining for me, and I've not gone completely crazy yet, just a little bit, though. And Thank you for coming back again, Mikhail Abdullah, the CEO. How should I introduce you? Like, What's the best title for you these days? Well, I'll, I'll hold on to that CEO title for a few more days, but uh, now um, an SVP of international for, for SoFi, the company that just acquired us. Got it. And the CEO at Aid Security. So why don't we say that just so people have context. How are you doing, by the way? Doing very well. Staying sane. So far, so good. But yeah, doing well. This has must have been a crazy year for you, no? And it's Absolutely. April. Beyond, beyond crazy. Um, <laughs> it, it went by really fast. But when I sort of pause and sort of look back at, at everything that happened, uh, just uh, very eventful for sure. Yeah. Look, I want to go back to 2012 around the founding of Aid Securities. And I mean, obviously to say we live in a different world, we talked about this a little bit offline, but that would be just a gigantic understatement. And I want to put it into perspective and then ask a question about it. I just did some research, and in the first quarter of 2012, AWS, which is now a behemoth, I think their revenue is somewhere between 25 and $27 billion a year. Back then, it wasn't even generating positive operating income, and its revenue was still less than $500 million in that first quarter of 2012. It was tiny, and the only reason why I point that out is because AWS and the power of AWS has made it much easier for people to start businesses, and I'm not advertising for them. I just want to make the point that even back then, just setting something up was harder than it is today. And you had a pretty good job back then. So what was it that made you say, I'm going to jump into the unknown and try to build something from scratch in an environment where it still wasn't that easy? Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to go back to to when I was working in London. Uh, okay. This is before I moved to Hong Kong. I was at E-Trade at the time, yep. and I was on the tube on the way to Canary Wharf going to work. And I was looking around me. And, and all I see are, you know, men and women in navy blue and gray suits just rocking back and forth on the tube. And it was literally at that moment where I said, this this is just not for me long term. I, I can't do um, this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And it put the seed in my head that I really wanted to, to do something on my own. Uh, but I did move to Hong Kong uh, with E-Trade, uh, ran the business for, uh, you know, E-Trade across Asia for a number of years. But then it was really the time to just sort of take the step and, and do my own thing. But the, I think the seed was planted at that moment. Um, but it was something um, something I, I just had to do. I told you, I give people so much credit for this, right? You know I worked at Morgan Stanley and at Goldman Sachs. And I didn't ride that tube to Canary Wharf, although I have worked at Canary Wharf. But I rode that virtual tube to, you know, Otemachi and to other places in Japan. And I, you know, worked in Hong Kong Center in, in Hong Kong. Like, I've done all that. And I give people like you credit for just saying enough is enough and leaving way earlier than I did. It took me 22 years to get out. <laughs> so I get the feeling. So what was the idea? So, you know, at the time we had launched Hong Kong's first uh, online brokerage uh, with E-Trade in right. 99, 2000. Um, and at that time, um, it was new, it was novel. Uh, and you just saw this huge shift from people moving sort of, you know, to offline brokerage uh, to online but as sort of the years passed, you know, really got the sense that nobody was speaking to younger clients, even at E-Trade, our customers were in their 40s and 50s. Got it. But really a view like, you know, who's serving the sort of, you know, 20 year olds, 30 year olds that want to invest and maybe investing for the very first time because all the products were complicated. You know, they were relatively expensive. 
um, dominated by the banks. It just there just wasn't a sort of clean solution for young clients. So that was the sort of original idea is why don't we get a product out there? There's really a need uh, for, for young customers and let's be the first to do it. And, you know, really, I think that the sort of big move was going mobile only. Um, and, and that's really where we started to get some some growth and, and, and trajectory going. Yeah, I mean, look, the keywords that I have in my head when I think about eight was simple, transparent, affordable, and mobile, right? And those are the things that you say the kind of younger population would like. But if I remember correctly, correctly, you kind of went out and set up a, a business that looked like a traditional business with the same, not the same, but a commission structure, you know, the same type of activities. It was mobile first, much more affordable with a different target market. But at some point you said, hmm, I think at least, maybe that's not going to work. You went to zero comms, yeah? Kind of yeah. like Robinhood in the U.S.? Exactly. So a couple of things. Was it scary to go for zero com? Do you know what I mean? And what was the impact of doing that? Like, what did it mean when after you did that? Well, it was interesting. So, you know, what's funny is is we went to zero commission fairly early. Yeah. And, and as a business, we weren't generating that much revenue anyway. So we didn't have a whole lot to lose. <laughs> so um, so in that sense, so it, great. you know, it wasn't that scary. And but but on the same token, you know, sort of on that same point, it it was really defensible because we knew all of our bigger competition that, that had very, very big brokerage businesses at the time had an enormous amount to lose. So we knew if we did it and we did it early, it was going to be defensible. And I mean, even to this day, we're still the only ones offering zero commission across Hong Kong and U.S. equities with no other fees. So in that respect, you know, it's it's, you know, we've been able to defend it. Right. But that's the other thing I was going to ask you is I remember, right, when I was sitting on a portfolio trading desk and we started doing, you know, DMA, so direct market access and direct to strategy access. And to be fair, you know, portfolio trading, even on the risk side back in, I want to pick the right year, 1995, 1996, they were still trading at 3% for risk. And by the time I was finished, people were paying for risk, right? So commissions actually went below zero. I'll pay you five basis points for that. So it almost seemed inevitable to me as we were building all this stuff out that zero commission was going to be the number because you could make money other ways, right? That's right. And but, you know, what's amazing is you've seen that happen virtually everywhere. So, you know, in the U.S., you've seen it across Europe. But in Hong Kong, it's shocking that even, you know, today, 2020, uh, the large banks are still on average charging 25 basis points or 100, 200 Hong Kong dollars per trade. And, you know, I, I say this often and I'll say it again, but, you know, I just have a very, very strong conviction that that anything that is a commodity and and online such as a stock trade yep. will eventually go to zero so you have to figure out you know how you're going to add value in other ways uh because if you don't you know you're in trouble and you know i, I think it's it's only a matter of time before you know these banks um are, are punished but you know it's it's going to happen so if you're a sophisticated investor right and You've been banking, let's just say, with Merrill Lynch, and I'm just pulling that out of thin air because it's the first name that comes into mind, right? Or even with E-Trade or TD or whatever's left, right? And you're paying anything for a commission. Why wouldn't you trade for zero somewhere else? Like, what do people think they're missing when they come and trade for someone that's offering commissions for free, basically? I think the big hurdle for people is the the value proposition is crystal clear, right? I mean, who doesn't yeah. want zero commissions? But it's the startups are, that are that are doing it. So it's the Robinhoods, it's the Eight Securities, and others 
that have sort of taken the leap to do it. And I think the biggest issue for most people, and I think it's maybe more of an issue in Asia, is just one of trust. So, yeah, I don't want to pay this commission, but I know that if I trade at HSBC or this this wealth manager, you know what? I, I trust them. You know, they're they're solid. So I think that's something, you know, even from back in 2012 and even today that we have to contend with is, is this sort of question of trust. You know, will this startup be around in the future? So I think that's the one and only hurdle people have. OK, I mean, I don't want to go too deeply in this, but are people not reading the news about you know, how German banks are rigging the FX markets or rigging the LIBOR markets or how some, you know, big companies who shall remain nameless are also mucking around in the real estate markets and getting fined like $4 billion. Like you've never been fined. Do you know what I mean? Right. right. Where's the, tr- it's a, there's a disconnect for me. And remember, I used to sit there, so I get it. But where does the trust come from when they read that in the newspaper? Like I don't trust Deutsche Bank as far as I can throw it. I can say that you can't, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think we have to make a distinction between liking and trusting. So I don't think people necessarily like these big institutions. For they sure, don't, for sure. Right? You know, they prefer if if it was an option to you know for all of their their financial services to be run by you know Apple, Amazon, Google, they take it. Right. Um, but but I think it's a distinction between liking and trusting. And trust may be the wrong word, but I guess there's some sense of security that okay, this institution's been here for a hundred years. Um, I know they've got a really big balance sheet and safe. So I think that's the the distinction I'd make. Yeah, I get it. It still doesn't make any sense to me, but I understand at some level the way people think about this. I want to switch gears a little bit, right? And I want to actually get to a point where we talk about your company getting acquired. But before we do that, I want to talk about penetration. You may have heard my InsureTech podcast, and on there we talk a lot about how there's just this paucity of insurance penetration in Asia, right? It's like, 2% 2% of people have some kind of insurance coverage. You were going for a younger crowd of people, right? Did you ever feel like you were too early? Do you know what I mean? Is there is that a similar issue in traditional investment products for stocks and bonds and stuff like that, that the penetration is not there yet? Yeah, and I think we were too early um, with eight securities. Our first product, um, you know, was... The idea was we wanted to give customers, this was around sort of Web 2.0 time, but give customers the ability to completely customize their own interface. Um, and if I had a do-over, I would have gone with Simple the first time. Um, but but I think that the technology that we were offering those clients, it was too early. So I think there's probably a number of times across the sort of history of eight that we did things too early. I think, you know, we were the first in Asia to launch social, social trading. It was very early. We were the first in Asia to launch RoboAdvisor very early. So I think there's a number of things that we, we did at first. There's some benefits to doing that. Yeah. Um, but to your point, you know, you, you, one startup can't accelerate the entire market. So sometimes you can just simply be too early and you just have to wait it out. So I want to ask you this too. And we, this didn't even exist the first time you and I recorded, but we talk about these alternative forms of financial services distribution, right? And you watch what Sing Life is doing, which is kind of more traditional. But what they're saying is if you're buying a life policy, we'll take some of that money and invest it for you as well and have it to be like kind of like a quasi bank account or an investment account, right? But but back then there was no grab, there was no Gojek, and those people that had 150 million downloads and six to eight million drivers were not trying to what's the right word distribute financial products through their pipes. But now they are. Is that do you think that's a way that's really going to drive uptake here? For sure, for sure. You do you know when I when I think about our our 
competition. I don't lose sleep over the incumbents. I don't lose, lose sleep over the, the banks. I think the, the real competition is going to come from the likes of, you know, Grab, Alipay, Tencent. It's already real competition. Yeah. Um, but I think this this idea of, you know, being able to sort of manage, you know, not only your financial life, but your entire life, you know, through this app, whether it's, you know, hailing a taxi, splitting a food bill, uh, putting a few dollars in a wealth management product, you know, that that for sure is the future and is formidable. But yeah, I, I agree. I think distribution's completely changing. It really is. And I wonder sometimes if like some of the financial service companies shouldn't open like ride hailing companies in reverse, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because if you trust, I'll just pick a one. If you trust, you know, Goldman to do your investing for you, wouldn't you trust Goldman to send you a fancy car and pick you up and bring you and your girlfriend or your wife out to dinner? I don't know. And if if anybody at Goldman's listening, I would highly recommend you do that. (laughs) There were other companies that kind of popped up. And I'm only half kidding, by the way. There, There are some other companies that popped up after... You started, right? One of them was Smartly, which was acquired by Vena Capital in 2019 and then pretty much summarily shut down in March 2020. And, you know, there are other companies still out there like Crystal and Stashaway and Bamboo and all these companies carry on without commenting on them specifically, right? Are those companies as standalone things really sustainable today anymore? You know, I think I think those businesses that are in the B2B space, right, that are selling... um, selling, for example, robo-advisor services to larger institutions that have relatively low cost structure. They're not licensed. They don't have these huge, you know, capital constraints and so on. Right. I think I think they can absolutely maintain themselves as standalone businesses. I think consumer fintech in general, much, much harder. Yeah. Um, when we launched robo-advisor very, very early, I think the one thing that we were sort of acutely aware of, and I think it was the, the, the sort of right frame of mind, was that robo-advisor is not a business in and of itself. The economics of robo-advisor as a business, just super challenging. It's just very, very difficult to build a real business from it. We looked at at it as a product. It's one of many products that we offer. Agreed. So I think monoline consumer fintech companies, really, really challenging to sort of sustain themselves. I suspect there's going to be a lot of M&A consolidation going forward. Because again, right, I think anybody who's not offering the sort of full suite on the mobile app, you know, that's, that's the future. Look, I've spoken to all of the people that run those businesses and I say to them the same thing. It's just an MAU game in that respect, right? If you're just taking a commission or a fee on the amount of money you have under management, the assets under management, right? It's just going to be hard to take that away. Like you said, you can provide a service to people, but in my mind, it's going to be hard to take all of that asset management money, management money away from Fidelity or Capital or, you know, State Street and BlackRock and all those other companies. I just don't see trillions of dollars moving from BlackRock into these other smaller companies. Yeah, right. Exactly. And if you look at, you know, for example, you know, Vanguard just tied up with uh, with Ant Financial with, right. with Alipay. Um, so now, again, you know, from the app, um, you've got, you know, fast access to, you know, professionally managed wealth management products. And, and if you think about that, I mean, the, the fact that Vanguard made that move credit to them right because we're talking about you know distribution but on the other side of that you know you have to have the product so you know good for them really smart move uh good for ant financials you know client base uh but i think those are the kind of tie-ups you're going to see going forward for sure yeah and i like to make it it's a really good point right and i like to make a distinction that ant financial is not in the same category no insult intended as bamboo it's just a different animal in my mind, right? Because it's just so huge and it's target market. You know, Ant obviously is not just China anymore, but it's all of Asia really, 
wanting to go global. And you're right, you can have the distribution, but if you don't have the product, it doesn't really mean anything. Right, exactly. I think. Look, you guys announced, what was it, last week? I forget, sometime in the second or third week of April, that you were being acquired by a pretty famous startup company in the United States, right? SoFi. And I'm curious about so many things, but I'm really curious, like, how long you've even known them and like what what changed what was the idea that decided to make you sell you and your team i think what's interesting is is the process with with sofi took about a year so we started conversations with them a year ago and you know credit to them absolute credit to them they stuck with us through the hong kong protests they stuck with us through covid-19 you know, all of this sort of um, happening in, in, in Hong Kong um, almost simultaneously. So, you know, they were really committed and a, and a great partner sort of throughout the, the process. Uh, but that process took, you know, a year. I think I think on the outside looking in, people may think that, you know, oh, you just start conversations and, and these things happen quickly. No you know, way. they don't. No, they no don't. Um, and, you know, we, we had no intention of, of selling the business uh, when we first had that conversation, you know, with them. Um, we, we had a meeting, um, and it just sort of, you know, sort of snowballed from there. And I think it was just really apparent, you know, very quickly that we had, you know, really clear alignment on, uh, our strategy. So mobile first, we had really clear alignment on our customer base, uh, millennials, generation Z. So today, you know, 80% of our customers are in their twenties and thirties and getting younger every day. So we had that sort of commonality, um, culturally, very, very close. And I guess from, uh, from a, a needs perspective on their side, you know, they're, they're very ambitious. They want to extend their footprint internationally. Um, and because, you know, my co-founder and I and, and many on our team had experience at E-Trade where we, you know, we were looking after 14 geographies at the peak, we'd had that experience before. So for them, you know, okay, here's a team that can maybe help us grow internationally as well. So it just, it just felt right. And I know that sounds like a cliche and people may say that, but, and, and let me say, you know, we've had, we had several conversations, M&A conversations over the years, and I can tell you none of the other ones felt right. Yeah. I mean, I laugh when you talk about being in 14 or 15 markets, right? Because most of these teams in the United States, maybe because that market is just so big, like they don't understand what it's like. They, you know, Connecticut is the same thing as, as um, Illinois, in a way, right? It's English, same regulation, same everything. Customs are slightly different, but not as different as the difference between like the Philippines and Indonesia. They just have right. no idea. But how do they find you? Like, I'm really curious about this. You know what I mean? Like when you go to a, you know, a dance, you can see the girls across the way that you want to dance with. You kind of know who they are. Maybe they're friends of friends, but like, how does a company like SoFi, which has been through a lot of ups and downs, to be fair, in the United States, how do they find eight securities in Hong Kong? How does that work? I think they had, you know, real, real purpose that they wanted to uh, extend their business into Asia first. Um, they had a team that came out to Singapore, Hong Kong, um, you know, did their homework before they came. Um, right. and, and we weren't obviously the only only business they met. But, you know, they did their homework. Uh, they contacted us. Um, and, you know, I think it was, you know, not not a lot of I think a lot of companies um, are reactive. They were just very, very proactive. But how does it happen? In other words, in, in the listed world, right? So if Exxon wants to take over mobile, they call Morgan Stanley. And then as soon as the phone call comes, mobile calls Goldman Sachs. And then it's like mobile and Exxon, I mean, mobile, excuse me, Morgan and Goldman are start negotiating, right? And maybe the CEOs or the CFOs get involved too. 
Are there bankers? And I don't want to know who they are, right? But are there bankers involved? And when you get this call, I'm assuming it comes to you. Are you surprised? Are you, do you know what I mean? What does that feel like? I wouldn't say surprise because it happens. It happens often. Okay. Um, the big difference with SoFi was that it was an American company, and that definitely you know got our attention. And, <laughs> and me being being American, you know, I, I I certainly would have a a strong you know preference for that across a number of, of reasons. But that was a surprise. I think in addition to that, where some of the previous calls were more traditional businesses that wanted to get into digital. So whether it was you know banks or insurance companies. Um, and most of them being mainland Chinese companies that wanted to extend into Hong Kong first. So I would say that probably represented 90% of the conversation. So the fact that it was an American right. um, digital consumer business was was great. Um, so that definitely got our attention. But, you know, we, we did have conversations along the way. And again, this one just was was the right one. And I'm really curious, without getting into specific numbers, right, just how... A U.S. company values an Asian company. You know, Hong Kong has been the world financial center for centuries, really, but in the modern times, like since the 70s and 80s, yeah? But it's different than being in Silicon Valley. It's different than being in Chicago or New York. How did, again, I don't want to know the number, but how did they go through this process of just valuing what that acquisition was going to look like? Yeah, you know what I think? I think with respect to, in, in the sort of startup world, when and, and they're a young company. I mean, yeah. you know, it's incredible, but they 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 launched around the same time we did, um, and they're you know they they hold about a four and a half you know billion dollar valuation today. So they are mm. they what they've done in, in in a short period of time is just is remarkable. But I would say within the sort of startup community and fintech to fintech, there's not a lot of intermediaries, not a lot of you know bankers and advisors. It's just it's just unnecessary and. You know, when we started our process and went through the process with them, it was just direct, right? It was us, you know, working with their team, working with their management team, working with their different functions. It was great. That's so cool. And things get done, you know, quicker and there's there's two-way transparency and I think trust is built much faster. So for us, it, it worked. But yeah, in most instances, you know, you've got you've got bankers and advisors and middlemen and and I think that creates a lot of challenges. So do I. Look, I mean, every time somebody gets in the middle and there's money involved, it's a problem, right? Because then yeah. they're not thinking about you, they're thinking about them. Was there any, and I don't know the way this works, right? This is just me asking a question because I'm curious, but you've raised a what I'll call a non-trivial amount of money over the past eight or so years. Do, the, do your investors get involved? Do they get a heads up? I mean, they don't get a vote, but I mean, they are shareholders. Like, how does that work? Absolutely. And, and, you know, they, the, our larger shareholders, um, sit on our board and, you know, and, and yeah. do have a vote. So, um, that's definitely a good point you raise. Um, it's not just so it, it's a complicated process. You're not just simply dealing with the, the buyer, but you're dealing with your own stakeholders. Um, and they came in at different times. Um, right. uh, probably some of them were ready, you know, for an exit. Others had come in more recently and, yep. you know, maybe they said, well, why don't we just ride this out for another five years and see where we are. So, you know, everyone's motivation is a little bit different, but yeah. I would say, I would say, frankly, the, the managing the shareholder process is more complex than actually the process with the buyer. <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. Look, I want to switch gears a little bit again, and I just ask you, right? Because a lot of founders 
feel like the companies that they're building, and I think the more they're, the longer the companies are around, and you've been around for a while, the, maybe the more they feel like this, right? It's kind of like your baby. What does it feel like for you to get acquired? Like, is it a relief? Do you feel like that's a big success? Is there a bit of a letdown in there? Like, what does that feel like for you personally? It, you know, I would say overwhelmingly, and I speak for the entire team, we're, we're excited, right? And, and, I, and when, I, when I started eight securities with my, my partner, yeah. you know, being very honest, we, we, we weren't trying to change the world. We were trying to build a business. We're business people. We've been around the block. And, you know, the most likely outcome for our business was going to be an acquisition. Fair enough. Um, and so, you know, you don't build your product and you're not motivated by that day to day. You know, you build a product for customers, but taking a longer term view, you know, that is a likely outcome. If you're successful, you'll likely be, you know, you'll be acquired. Um, so I think with that in mind, um, it, it's the outcome we had sort of hoped for. Um, it's the out- outcome that I think is absolutely best for our, our staff. Um, and I'd say overwhelmingly excited. But at the same time, you know, I was I was just speaking to my 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 partner and, you know, taking the sign off the wall, taking the eight security yeah. sign off the wall of the office. It's sad. It's it is. Absolutely. There's an element of sadness there because it is your baby through and through. And uh, to see it, you know, it is sort of right off into the sunset is, is sad. So I don't talk about this a lot, right? But I think there is an equivalency here. I, when I left Morgan Stanley, which is the first company I joined after I graduated, I was there from what, 1987 to 1998, almost over 11 years, right? And my identity was tied up in Morgan Stanley. I'd answer the phone. This is Michael Waits from Morgan Stanley. Like, that's just what I did. And when I moved to Deutsche Bank, I stopped saying the company name because I was 100% sure I was going to muck it up and say this is Michael from Morgan Stanley kind of thing, right? And I remember once I got out of that, I just thought, okay, I'm never going to have that feeling again. Does that make any sense, you know? Yeah, it, it does. Um, I think we're, we're really, we're fortunate in that, you know, we we're a business that was acquired in a you know, in a sort of independent market from from SoFi's home market. And and practically speaking, you know, we're going to run the business in very much the same way right. we have been. You know, 100% of our staff have been retained. That's um, good, actually. The, the business is growing. Um, they've, you know, they put a lot of faith in us. Um, we're extending into new geographies. So, I, I, you know, in, in many respects, just sort of when you wake up in the morning and you go to work, it's very much the same. The name is different, yes, um, there's some differences sort of, you know, operationally, but, you know, by and large, it doesn't feel that different. Is there a way, like, are you going to also use the products and the stuff that you have here and push those into the United States as well? I don't necessarily see that happening. Um, I just think the, the regulation, the compliance, you know, there's so many factors that go into passporting a technology, uh, overseas into the U S and vice versa. Uh, and I think that's that's a lot of the motivation for for why they acquired us is 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 understanding that taking a U.S. platform and extending it internationally is really really hard. Where we had a sort of turnkey, you know, multi market, multi currency platform that we could take into other international markets. So right. I think it's it's difficult both ways. So no, I, I think it's really about taking the platform we have and using that for international expansion. Got it. I'm just thinking. And how about COVID? Like, how has that impacted you guys? You know, it, it it surprises people, but we had our best quarter uh, last quarter. Um, so in sort of Q1 2020, we had 40 percent, uh, sorry, 400 percent growth against our 2019 monthly average. Huge growth. 
and that's across all our metrics, um, accounts, uh, trades, turnover. Um, and again, it's because, you know, we're a, we're a mobile only business. Um, there's no question that um, we benefited from from people being at home. You know, we benefited from people deciding that, you know, it wasn't worth going to the branch. You know, maybe I want to open this account instead. Right. And I think it's it's not unique to us. You know, I know a lot of consumer fintech companies um, across the globe have benefited during this time. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, but, um, it, you know, Q1 was an incredibly strong quarter for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not surprised, to be fair, right? Like you say, a lot of people are not going to their offices. They're sitting at home saying, I want to talk to my broker, but maybe my broker's not in the thing anymore, in this office anymore. So why don't I just trust what I have on my phone since I do everything else there anyway? I mean, you kind of mentioned that earlier, right? People are not running individual pieces of their life off their phone. They're running everything. So why should this be any different, right? Yeah, but you know what... what Hong Kong, if you, if you look at sort of mainland China and Hong Kong, they're, they're two different different animals. And in China, you've seen this just rapid adoption to mobile um, for a number of, of reasons. And in Hong Kong, I think because retail and has just is just so convenient, right? If, if I bank with HSBC, there's a branch on every corner. I can just pop in. It, it creates some inertia for a, for a pure online business, I think. Um, but but that sort of was taken away, you know, and that has been taken away. And that really changed things for us uh, and a lot of consumer fintech companies in Hong Kong. Um, so I just think the the people's behavior is shifting. And there's no question that Hong Kong is going to look more like like China. It's just a matter of time. I just think this has been an accelerator. Yeah, look, I think one of the things that people that have never been to Hong Kong or haven't spent a lot of time in Hong Kong don't understand is just how concentrated all of the activity is. Yeah. And what that means, you're right. Like, I don't know what the stats are on e-commerce in Hong Kong, but why? Like, why wait for two-hour delivery when I can literally just, like, walk exactly. down the hill and go buy it? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> right? And it's got to be the same thing in financial services. It's like, why do all this machinations that I don't understand, you know, if I'm in my 50s or 60s, when I can just walk over to my branch and get it done? Exactly. It's so true. <laughs> Okay. Look, I really appreciate your time today. Unless there's something else, something else that we don't understand that we should know about these kinds of acquisitions, because not a lot of people have gone through it in this region. If there's nothing else you want to comment on, I just want to thank you for doing this. But if there is, please feel free. Yeah, you know, I would the last thing I would say on on this, you know, this this process um, is we're entering a time now where markets are going to get difficult, and I think that you know we're yeah. entering a time um, that you know, fintechs are going to be under massive pressure. You know, you even saw uh, a fintech in the U.S., you know, recently closed Motif Investing, um, which was in sort of theme-based investments. They raised $100 million in capital. Wow. And that's an, that's an eye-opener, right? That just happened. Um, and so there's no question that, that, you know, I think there's going to be more of this. Um, so I suspect, you know, there are going to be a lot of fintechs out there that are, you know, approached. Um, there's going to be opportunities potentially for, for fintechs to merge with one another. I think it's a time for entrepreneurs to be really open minded. Um, I don't think the market's going to get uh, easier in the next couple of years. So, you know, I just think be, be open minded, you know, have the conversations, meet everyone. And, and you know, in our case, you know, I feel really, really fortunate um, we got this deal closed when we did. If this had happened six months later, who knows? But really just, you know, want to encourage entrepreneurs to, you know, start having those conversations, be open-minded. The future may not be what you'd hoped it was, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. That's a killer way to end. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate your time today. That was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.